You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. In late June of 1776, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to Benjamin Franklin And he was asking him to put his eyes on the Declaration of Independence for a meeting that he had the following morning. He wanted uh, wanted Franklin to give it one more look. And so here's what he wrote to Benjamin Franklin. He said, will Dr. Franklin be so good as to peruse it and suggest alterations as his more enlarged view of the subject will dictate? That's just a really long-winded way of saying, hey, will you give this another edit? Franklin only offered a few changes. All were minor except for one. Jefferson's version that he sent to Franklin read like this. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, if you're a student of history, you'll notice that there's something about this, uh, these couple of sentences that don't read like the one you probably had to memorize in school. See, Franklin crossed out the words sacred and undeniable, and he replaced it with one word. Do you remember that word? Self-evident. I heard it. Franklin's edit read this, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Evident. Now, do you know what that word self-evident means? Well, something is self-evident if it can be grasped logically by reason if you just kind of think about it long enough. By reason, by logical syllogism, if you just think about it long enough, you don't need any outside truth, you don't need any outside source. It just, on your own, any person with a functioning brain should be able to come to these conclusions. That's what Franklin was, was, was saying, that you should just be able to think about it long enough and come to the conclusion that all men are created equal and that they, they all have this unalienable right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. The problem with that, Mr. Franklin, is that the fundamental equality of human beings, that their endowment by their creator with these inalienable, unalienable rights are first and foremost theological beliefs, not the result of logical reasoning. Writing on the subject, Andrew Wilson, Wilson writes this, Jefferson was right the first time. Equality and human rights are sacred truths, not self-evident ones. They are irreducibly theological, grounded in specifically Judeo-Christian beliefs about God and his creation of humans in his image. And there is no particular reason why societies with different theological foundations should not reach very different conclusions. And as history and contemporary news has shown, many countries and cultures throughout generations have reached different conclusions enabling some of the greatest atrocities our world has ever known. In other words, when you take the one true and living God out of the moral equation, people in societies will treat people in very um, uh, horrific kind of ways. So think Hitler's final solution for eliminating the Jews and the Holocaust. Think chattel slavery in the Jim Crow era in America. Think of the millions of aborted children in America just since 1973 when abortion on demand became legal in the United States. Think of the, uh, 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 the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We could just keep going on and on and on and find example after example of what happens when you take God out of the moral equation, enabling you to treat people as less than human. And this morning... As we enter into the darkness of chapter 1, we begin the Exodus story. And as the story unfolds, we come to another example of a reign of terror and a culture of death. The kind of suffering that happens when sacred truths are denied. And as we work through this text, we'll find three movements in this story. 
And as I mentioned last week, because their story is really our story as well, all of these things have implications on our experience, on our journey of redemption. So if you're taking notes, here's the outline, the broad strokes of where we're going to head this morning. First, in the first movement, we're going to see unrealized promises. At this point in the story, uh, some of the promises made to this covenantal people have been realized. They've come to fruition, and yet there's a lot of promises that have not been realized. They are unrealized. And much of what the Lord has promised to Abraham has yet to come to pass. Second, in the second movement, we will see unthinkable suffering. Perhaps you heard that as the text was read this morning, that these are a people in days of darkness at the hands of a paranoid king. And in the midst of unthinkable suffering without explanation, we're going to ask, how do we hold out hope and remain faithful? And finally, our third movement, we will see unexpected hope. Hope, we find, can spring from the most unlikely of places. And in this movement, we will see the courage and strength rise as God providentially brings about salvation. That's where we're headed this morning. Unrealized promises, unthinkable suffering, and unexpected hope. Let's start together in verse 1. Here again, the word of the Lord. Moses writes, These are the names of the Son of Israel, who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi in Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now the book of Exodus begins with uh, some verses that we might be tempted to just skip right over. It's like the you know, the boring genealogies, like what are these here for? Well, these are here to provide us a link to the book of Genesis. In fact, we don't, it's not translated like this in our text, but the very first Hebrew word in Exodus is the, is the word and. Moses is saying and, and, and in other words, like the story is continuing. This is part two of a multi-volume work. In other words, you need to understand what's gone before in the book of Genesis and you need to take all of that information and carry it with you into the book of Exodus. It's very difficult to understand the book of Exodus without some understanding of the book of Genesis because the story is going on. It's, an, it's important to note that connection because promises have been made to Abraham and his descendants, these people we just read about, these sons of Jacob. And some of these promises have come to pass, and some of them have not. And so we're the the ones that have come to pass. We should know what those are to see how God is already moving, but then we should keep in mind these promises that have yet to come to fruition. We are about to enter into their suffering, into these days of darkness, and it's, it's important to remember who this family is. These are not just random people. This is the promised family. This is the people that God has promised and purposed to use to crush the head of the serpent, the the serpent we met back in the Garden of Eden who who has helped to usher in sin and death and suffering into this world. And God has promised through this family, specifically, that there will come a seed from the woman who will crush this serpent's head. We have to keep that in our mind as we enter into this story. In the opening verses, we read the names of this particular branch of Abraham's family tree, and it's an invitation to remember the promises made to this family. So if you remember in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, God makes a series of promises to Abraham. We get a genealogy of Abraham. We realize that he is a direct descendant of Seth. Remember Cain and Abel, the first two sons. Cain kills Abel, and then there's a new, uh, Abel, or Cain is exiled, and then Eve has a new son, this new son of promise, Seth. Abraham is a direct descendant of him. He's, that, he's part of that line, that chosen line that God will use to weave his story of redemption. And it's interesting, when we meet Abraham... He's not like sitting on some hill just praying like, Lord, I, I know you're going to do something great with my life. I'm just waiting for you, Lord. No, when we find Abraham, 
He is in a pagan country, worshiping pagan gods and not following his life after the Lord. He, he looks nothing like a candidate to be the father of faith. And yet, God calls him out of his idolatry into relationship with the one true God. You remember what he tells him? He says to go leave this land, leave your former life. Leave your life of idolatry and come learn what it looks like to walk with me. Walk with me by faith. You'll remember also that when God calls Abraham, he is childless. He and Sarah have not had any children. And he tells Abraham that, you will, that from you will come a great nation. And he's like, nation? I don't even have one child, let alone like many children to make a nation. And he and his wife, Sarah, are well past the point of youthful fertility. He assumes that whatever will happen in this line of promise, there's no way it's going to happen through him. But into his doubts, God speaks his promise. God promises that from his childless wife will come a son. And that son will one day become a people as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the shore. He promises to give his descendants a land that they will uh, call their own. Because if you're going to have a great nation, you've got to have a place to live. And he promises him that he will bless his family in order to be a blessing to others. And by the word of his promise through faith, in that moment, as, as God calls him out of his life of idolatry and tells him that he has chosen him to be the one through whom he will being, bring blessing and redemption to the world, God connects Abraham to that promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We call this the, the first gospel, the proto-euangelion of the Bible. It's the first time since the bad news that we have this glimpse of good news. Genesis 3.15 God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking to this serpent. He's saying there is going to be now enmity, strife between the, 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 the seed of promise and your offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we're set up with this, this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In other words, we should be looking for replays of this enmity, this conflict that's going to happen. This is the family that has made their way into Egypt. And so by going through this genealogy, Moses is connecting us to remember all of those promises. Now look at verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now here in verses 6 and 7, we move from family history and we are now into the current time period in this uh, book of Exodus. So at this point, Joseph and all of his brothers and that, that generation have died. And over the years, this people, uh, this family has become a people. It's no longer just this clan. It is now like this growing nation of this people group. The language of verse 7 borrows from the creation account in Genesis 1. Just like God told our first parents to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, Moses says they've done that. They're fulfilling the creation mandate. They, the, the, the people of God have become fruitful. They've multiplied and they have now filled the earth. And what's more, we find that they've increased greatly. If you look in the Hebrew, this word means to, to swarm or to team. And when you go back to Genesis 1, you see this as referring to the proliferation of life among aquatic life and insect life. It's used again after the flood as the Lord instructs Moses or uh, Noah to lead all creatures, big and small, out of the ark. And to what? Proliferate and swarm to fill the earth again. Now, what is this doing? Moses is painting a picture for us that what has happened in this time period is sort of unprecedented proliferation, phenomenal growth in Egypt. In other words, their growth was insect-like. In the ways that insects don't reproduce one by one, they, they reproduce exponentially. That's what's happening here. Moses is saying it's a kind of blessing and life that, that would have been unprecedented. 
It's a kind of fertility that would have exceeded normal expectations. In other words, more than usual conceived, fewer than normal miscarried. And those children who were born were, were surviving into adulthood. It was evident that the blessing of God was on this people. They increased greatly and grew exceedingly strong. In Genesis, it seems like people are having a hard time conceiving, right? Every, every patriarch and their wife, they're, they're, they're having difficulty conceiving. Now in Exodus, everybody's conceiving and they're growing. Some of God's promises have started to come to fruition, right? Like what he told Abraham, that you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sea and the sands on the shore. You can look and go, look, God is being faithful to his word. God is with his people. They're growing into a great nation. At this point in the story, life in Egypt is good. Their life is characterized by goodness, freedom, and blessing. Now, in addition to these realized promises, there are some unrealized promises. If you remember in Genesis 15, as he's um, outlining to Abraham all the things he's going to do with them, there's this very curious promise and, and, and at the time, we don't really know what to do with it. We kind of read it and go, huh, that's interesting. But it has such significance as it relates to Exodus. Let me remind you. Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Does that sound like anything you know about? I mean, considering the, like where we're headed in the book of Exodus, this was, this was planned a long time ago. And it's important that we put that peg in our minds because the, 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 their, their coming suffering, their slavery, these 400 years of bitterness is not unplanned. It's not unforeseen. God isn't going, whoa, wait, wait, what's happening here? He has already told Abraham that this, that this day will come. Now at the time, Abraham doesn't know it's going to be Egypt. He doesn't know when this is going to come to pass. All he knows for certain is that there will be this long period of time, this long period of suffering for his future descendants. But the Lord assures Abraham that all of this, including their suffering, is a part of his plan. And if you remember, fast forward to Genesis 46 and verses 1 to 4, after Jacob has his name changed to Israel, and he's considering should he go into Egypt, he gets a word from the Lord. Listen to what he says. The Lord says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now here's why these unrealized promises are very important. As readers, we're supposed to read and go into the book of Exodus with these promises in mind. We're supposed to remember that this family, this nation, is a part of God's plan such that nothing that happens to them happens by accident and nothing is going to be left to chance. Nothing. We're supposed to remember that no matter what, God is with them and God is for them. He has promised. He has shown himself to be faithful already. And we can trust him to be faithful in the days ahead. And we're to remember that no matter how bleak, how dark these coming days are, God has already promised to go with them and to take and to deliver them out of Egypt. Now with these unrealized promises, we know that there's more to this story. So let's keep moving. We've, we've covered unrealized promises. Now let's see this next movement, unthinkable suffering. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from this land. With everything so far, verse 8 has an ominous ring to it. And conflict starts to enter the plot. We're told that this new king did not know Joseph and his importance in the history of Egypt. Now remember, at this point in the story, Joseph and his descendants, I mean, like his generation, have long since died. That said, Joseph's fame 
was far-reaching and widespread. He was not an insignificant player. He was the one who kept Egypt from perishing in the famine. It was his ability to interpret the dream of the Pharaoh. It was his administrative uh, 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 savviness that, was, that enabled them to um, store up plenty so that they had what they needed in the years of famine. He had become a national hero. It would be the equivalent of someone today being like, I've never heard of George Washington. I don't know who Martin Luther King Jr. is. Who, who are these people? No, no. They have such significance in our history. Their accomplishments were such that it, it creates kind of a, a legacy that reverberates out even hundreds of years later. See, it wasn't that the new king didn't know who Joseph was. It was that he did not care. You see, he can't care about and hold significant what Joseph has done and hold enmity against the people of Israel. The thrust of this text carries a belligerent tone. He did not regard Joseph. He did not want to esteem him. He, he refused, in other words, to acknowledge the worth of Joseph's contribution to Egypt's well-being. So he no longer sees the nation of Israel as a blessing, but he sees them as a threat. So Pharaoh, he gathers his advisors together and he comes up with a plan to deal shrewdly with the people of God. And listen to this. He wants to make it so that they can never leave the land. Did you see that in his statement? He said, like, they may join forces with other people and one day leave. So he wants to figure out a way to control them but also not let them leave because they are going to become a part of his workforce. And though he doesn't know it yet, this desire to treat them poorly, to deal shrewdly with them and keep them in this land puts him in direct opposition to the word of the Lord. You remember, God has said, I will take you up out of this land. And Pharaoh is saying, I am not going to let this group of people go. Do you see how he has put himself at odds with God? We know this because we've already looked at these promises in Genesis that God has promised to go down with them into Egypt and one day to bring them out. And Pharaoh is saying, we've got to figure out a way to make sure this people stays here. We can't let them get too big that they overpower us, but we don't want to let them go. Now, can you think of someone at this point in the Bible who has contradicted God's word and stood opposed to the purposes of God. Who is it? The snake. The serpent, right? He has contradicted God's word, and he has tried to thwart the purposes of God. Do you know what symbol the Pharaoh wears on his head? On his big old crown. You know what's right on there? A serpent. The technical term for this is Aureus. It was an upright cobra with like the big hood, and it's used as a symbol of sovereignty, royalty, deity, divine authority. In other words, when the Pharaoh puts that on, he is saying, I make all the rules. I am in complete control. I am the sovereign one. What I say goes. Friends, this is no mere coincidence. Remember how in Genesis 3.15, God said there's going to be um, offspring of the serpent at odds with the offspring of the seed of the woman. Do you see how they are now at odds with one another? Pharaoh is a son of the serpent, and they are now at enmity, at odds with the people of God. Verse 11, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities. Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So Pharaoh is motivated by fear that they would grow, and he has a desire to exploit these, uh, these people, and so he enslaves them. Evidently, it is not self-evident to Pharaoh that the Israelites are endowed by their creator with the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see how that connection is made? He's, he is now God, and so he can do whatever he wants. 
Their freedom is taken. Their humanity is reduced to machines of production. You remember the language of Genesis 1? What's supposed to come after be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth? We're supposed to subdue and have dominion. But that's not what happens here. Instead of the people of God multiplying and filling and then going to subdue and have dominion, they are subdued and they are dominated. This is the turn in the story. The goodness turns to bitterness. Freedom turns to slavery. Blessing turns to curses. And despite the government-sanctioned, institutionalized affliction, the people of God continue to multiply. They continue to increase. In other words, opposition does not stop the plan of God. Pharaoh thought these unfavorable living circumstances being enslaved would lead to population control where they could be more easily managed and manipulated. But what happens? They continue to increase all the more. And Moses tells us that their lives became bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and assume no one here has made their own mortar and bricks before. Or if you did, you made like one or two as like a homeschool experiment or something like that. And I'm not dogging homeschool. I'm, I'm a homeschooler. What I'm saying is no one here like lives their lives like that. This is the ancient world. You know what I do when I need a brick? I go to Home Depot. They're already packaged. They're ready to go. It's awesome. But in the ancient world, you wanted bricks. Guess what? You had to make them. It is backbreaking, soul-crushing labor. First thing you need to know about mortar and brick making is it is perpetually dusty and smoky. The dust never settles. It's just constantly in the air. The smoke never clears. So as you are walking around, you are constantly breathing in the particulates of dust and smoke. It is just entering into your lungs all day long. Everything is coated in dust and smoke. That's your body, it's your lungs, everything. And then as you are working and sweating, your sweat mixes in with all that dust and all that smoke. And you know what happens? It starts to form a hard uh, clay around your skin. It dries it out so that your skin begins to crack. There is also a kiln that never sleeps. It's what they use to, to dry uh, and to, to form and harden um, these bricks. And it never sleeps. It is always on. This, this machine never turns off. And so it requires constant fuel to burn. Which means it requires people to constantly feed it and to constantly stoke the coals so that it stays at an optimal temperature. Before the bricks are ready for the kiln, they have to be shaped. They have to be sun-dried. And so slaves, would, would, they would have these, these very, very long assembly lines where people are just packing in the wet clay, mixing it with straw for, uh, for strength. Brick after brick, row after row, they're packing the molds. Then the molds have to be carried out to the sun where they get their first layer of drying. The sun will, will, will kind of bake them till they're not soupy anymore and that they're ready to go into the kiln. They got to be carried there again. Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, year after year, until all you've known your entire life is the dirty, back-breaking, skin-cracking, skull-crushing, monotonous work of mortar and brick. When you die, you're just replaced by another person on the assembly line. Friends, this is unthinkable suffering. I'd be labored to expand that because it's easy for us to go, oh yeah, they made mortar and bricks. But that was their entire life. Imagine, as a slave, you have no need for a calendar. You know why? You know why we have calendars? Because our time is our own and we can organize it how we please. If you're a slave... You don't need a calendar. You don't need a watch. You're always working. This is unthinkable suffering. Now I'm going to go out on a limb. I don't think I'm alone when I say, if you were to take all the suffering of my entire 40 years, I've never experienced anything that comes close to this. Like I, I don't even have a category for what that life would be like. 
And I'm thankful for that. But in light of this suffering, I hope you're starting to see why we spent time looking at the promises in Genesis. Because it could be very easy for any of them, ourselves included, to go, maybe they weren't supposed to be there. Maybe they took a wrong turn somewhere. Maybe, maybe they've done something wrong to deserve this. But it's important for us to see those promises because God says, it is my will for you to go down into Egypt. So in other words, they are right where God wants them be, wants them to be. God has promised that they will grow despite this opposition, that this family will become a great nation, and that one day he would lead them out of Egypt. You, can, you wouldn't blame an Israelite for the thought entering into their head, maybe even settling down into their heart, that maybe God had abandoned them, that maybe they weren't where they were supposed to be, that maybe God was unjust, unfair. Maybe he had just stopped caring about them. You would not fault them for coming to that kind of conclusion. But what were they supposed to do? They were to remember the promises of God. And listen, they didn't have a nice you know, leather-bound Bible like this with the words of God written down. This was an oral culture. It would have been passed down from generation to generation. They would have known the promises that had been given to this particular family. And they were to remember the promises of God. They were to rehearse the good news of those promises. God had led them down into Egypt. He promised that one day, somehow, some way, he would deliver them again. That all of this was a part of God's now, does that make the day-to-day -day suffering less painful? No. It still breaks your back, it still cracks your skin, and it will still crush your soul. But it should keep this flame alive in your soul that God is at work, that my suffering is not meaningless, it's not purposeless. See, for God's people, suffering is never meaningless. And it's never purposeless, even if you don't know what that meaning or purpose is. Our suffering, family of God, is never wasted. There is a reason for it, even if we don't understand it. This is the same people where hundreds of years earlier, their great, great, I'm not sure exactly how many great grandfathers uh, there, said, uh, Joseph said, what you intended for evil, God has purposed for good. Same family. Remember, the, the brothers, they intended evil. They hated their brother. They wanted him dead and sold off. And Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And he didn't know how God was going to use it in his life until like towards the end of his life. But that suffering, that time of being thrown into prison was all for a purpose. This is the same family who hundreds of years later will come one who writes these very famous words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Family of God, this needs to be one you memorize. You don't have to memorize the whole Bible, but this is one you need down in your soul to remember that your suffering is never wasted. God will always work together for good. So all this suffering for those who are called according to his purpose. It is instinctual. You might call it natural in, the time, in times of suffering to just look at our circumstances. It's easy to see what's right in front of you and to assume the only way I can make sense of this is that God has abandoned me or that he's against me or that I've done something wrong. There will be times in your life when that's what your situations and circumstances would seem to suggest. And I'm not saying that sometimes we aren't in difficult situations because we've strayed from the Lord's will or we've made foolish decisions. Sometimes you're in a mess because you caused it, like you did it. And it's important in that situation to remember, to repent, ask for forgiveness, and turn back towards the Lord and to know that he'll even use your foolishness and sin for his good and your good and his glory. But what I'm saying is that life is not that simple. 
Life does not work by karma. God has not set up the world in such that good things only come to good people and bad things only come to bad people. That is a lie. That is not what you find in the scriptures. Life is much more complicated than that. So look at me. Suffering is going to be a part of your story. The most righteous, faithful people will experience suffering. I don't think you can actually turn a page or two in the Bible and not see the people of God suffering. How we ever came to this conclusion that suffering is not going to be a part of my story is beyond me. Because it's just not the biblical account. And when you face periods of suffering, first... It's a good practice. Begin with, Lord, have I strayed from your will? Have I done something to do this? And if so, repent, ask forgiveness, get back on the path. But also, what this is supposed to do is create a category in your mind, this third category, to go, wait a minute. Sometimes, as as a part of God's plan, it might mean I'm going to go through suffering. You will suffer. You will go through hard things You will sometimes experience unexplainable suffering, meaning there's just no answer to the question of why at this point. And in that time, you are to remember the promises of God. He is faithful. He will deliver you in one way or another. In the same way that the people of Israel had to lean into the promises of God, that one day he would bring his people up out of Egypt, we too lean into those promises. And just like them, we are awaiting a deliverer who will come to deal the final blow to the serpent and usher us into the joy and freedom of his kingdom. And just like the Israelites, our deliverer promises to be with us and for us even to the end of the age. You remember Jesus before he ascended? He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So far, we've seen unrealized promises and unthinkable suffering. Let's turn to our final movement, unexpected hope. I love this part of the story. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall live. Now, just when you think that there's no way things can get worse, Pharaoh says, watch me. Watch how far my wickedness can go. The serpent turns his opposition to life into a culture of death. And he starts a program of gender-based infanticide. The intention here is to emasculate Israel and ensure that this population is brought under his dominion and control, ensuring that they are stripped of potential future warriors. It is inhumane, it is horrific, it is the cruelty of the worst kind. In fact, there's just really not words. Like, at this point, words fail to really capture the gruesomeness and sinfulness of this kind of action. Now, this isn't a full-blown sermon on the sanctity of human life and the atrocity of abortion. We've done that before. It's on our website. But I would be remiss not to draw out a very obvious connection and I would suggest to you if Pharaoh had had the the kind of technology to determine the sex of the baby in utero if Pharaoh had had his hands on some ancient kind of ultrasound sonogram he would have run these Hebrew women through Planned Parenthood for sex selective abortions 100% he would have done that now I know listen that there are often difficult realities that surround unplanned or unwanted pregnancies. I, I know that. I know that. However, the situation that you're facing, the difficulty of it, does not change the reality that there is God given life in the womb that is also privileged to, endowed by his or her creator with certain unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Friends, difficult circumstances 
don't change a baby, don't transform a human baby into a clump of cells. Just doesn't. Now, I know that statement is super offensive to some people in our culture. But the truth is often offensive to those who don't want to see it for what it is. Paul told us in Romans that our sin will give us a proclivity to suppress the truth. So here's what that means. Because there is sin in your heart, because we are born into sin, you just need to know that there will be times in your life, whether it's this truth or another truth, there will be things in your life where you will have a proclivity to take the very basic, sacred, undeniable truths of God and to suppress that truth to believe something else, to exchange that truth for a lie. We just have to understand that about ourselves. It's about knowing our own hearts. Let me also say, while we're speaking truth, that abortion is not an unforgivable sin. It's not. As horrific as it is, it's not unforgivable. It's forgivable and redeemable. And let me tell you the beauty of the gospel. We're going to, you know, I I hope I'm not uh, giving a spoiler on the book of Exodus. Moses is going to come. He's going to deliver the people of Israel. Okay. That's going to happen. Now, here's what happens when he does that. He is going to be uh, uh, risen up to deliver this oppressed people, right? There are people under oppression, and the Lord is going to use him to deliver the oppressed. And what happens to the oppressors? They're swallowed up in in the Red Sea, right? Moses delivers the oppressed, but the, deli- the oppressors are judged. They face judgment. There is coming a day when Jesus will come onto the scene, who is the truer and greater Moses. And guess what he does? He offers deliverance to both the oppressed and oppressors. It's amazing. It's called grace. And that's why abortion is not an unforgivable sin. Because Jesus' grace extends to all who would acknowledge their sin and repent before the Lord. God's steadfast love and grace are offered to all who acknowledge their sin and ask for forgiveness. So as a church, we want to be a church that is willing to say true things, hard things, unpopular things, stand against a culture of death, while at the same time extending the hope of forgiveness and grace. That said, let's look at two courageous women who stood up to the Pharaoh. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied, and they grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I want you to know these two women's name. Shifra and Puah. They are the two Hebrew midwives given a direct order to kill Hebrew sons at birth. It's very likely that these two women are kind of head midwives to a whole crew of you know under midwives because this is a big nation there's no way that these two women are assisting every single birth but they're kind of in charge of this midwifery program okay and so pharaoh comes to them and says i need you and all of your all of your your underling midwives to uh emasculate the people of god and throw these hebrew sons into the nile now notice the pharaoh is never named you can read the whole account He's got no name. He's just the Pharaoh, new king. Who is named in this story? Shifra and Puah. Now, I would suggest to you that Moses knew who this man's name was. He's not having one of those like senior moments, you know, where he's writing this book later on being like, what was that guy's name? No, no, he knows his name. He's doing something intentional. He's saying this man, this son of the serpent, doesn't deserve to be named. These two women, courageous standing against this culture of death against all odds, they get named. 
forever in God's forever word. You know, like things are going to perish and fall away, but God's word is going to remain forever. And whose, whose names will forever be remembered? Shifra and Puah. They are not nameless, but they are named because they defy the king in his edict of death. I love how Victor Hamilton says it. These midwives will not render unto Pharaoh what ultimately belongs to God. And friends, that's just, that is like the truth that underlines culture of life versus culture of death. God gives life. It is his gift. So we cannot render life unto others what rightly belongs to God. They just won't do it. And when they're confronted about it, their strategy is remarkable. It's unlikely that Hebrew women are just better at giving birth than every other people group. Okay? What they're doing is coming up with a plan here for how they can protect these Hebrew women and their children. They're intentionally deceiving Pharaoh. And because Pharaoh stands opposed to God, he has forfeited his right to the truth. This would be the the same kind of moral equation as lying to the Nazis when the Gestapo shows up at your door and says, where are the Jews? And you're like, no Jews here, even though you've got a whole crew of them hiding. It's the same thing. Those people have, they have uh, forfeited their right to know the truth because they stand in line with the seed of the serpent and are proliferating a culture of death. In that regard, you do not have to give them the truth. So instead of being intimidated and deceived by this nameless serpent, Shifra and Pua, the named heroines of the story, deceive the serpent. I just love this reversal of uh, the Garden of Eden. In the garden, the woman is deceived by the serpent, and they're redeeming that. They're going, no, no, we are going to deceive the serpent. It's very likely that Pharaoh, as an ancient man, knew very little about labor pains and how children are actually delivered. And so he's just kind of going, yeah, I guess I don't know anything about that. Their strategy works. And when you'd expect them to be punished for not getting the job done, the Lord is behind the scenes protecting them for their faith to stand up to the serpent. And we're even told that the Lord rewards them with families of their own. I would also like to suggest to you that this is not quid pro quo, like this for that, where they're going, maybe if I do this good thing for the Lord, he's going to bless me. No, no, I think they're just living out their faith. And the Lord decides to bless them. They are not trying to save Hebrew children in exchange for their blessings. In fact, Moses tells us the reason why they did this. Why? Because they feared the Lord more than Pharaoh. They feared the Lord more than Pharaoh. So what are they doing? They're acting from a place of faith. And their faith determines their actions. They know full well that Pharaoh may in fact have them executed for lying to them or denying him what he wants but they know that there are worse things than death. They know before God, they will stand judgment one day, and before God, they're going to do everything they can to protect what the Lord says should be protected. It's not even presented as an ethical dilemma. Like they're struggling with, what should I do in this moment? No, no, no. They go, listen, I fear the Lord more than Pharaoh. Come what may. He has us executed, come what may. He has our families hurt, come what may. But we fear the Lord. That settles the matter. Friends, this should be inspirational for us to stand up for what is right, no matter if it's unpopular, no matter if it won't get likes on Instagram or hearts or whatever it is, even if it comes with negative implications. It should also be instructional. So don't let it just merely be inspirational. It should be instructional, meaning this is how we're to live. Paul tells us that these things were written for our instruction. What made the difference in their decision-making process? He tells us the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord drives their actions. So in other words, the more we grow in our fear of the Lord, the more we will learn to value him and his ways above all else. And then the more our decisions will fall in line with his will. In the middle of this day of darkness, this is the hope. It's unexpected. You would never expect these two Hebrew women to be the ones to stand up and defy the king. And it's through them 
that you see the sovereign hand of God bringing hope, bringing salvation, such that despite ruthless slavery and toil, despite government-sanctioned edicts of death, the people of God continue to multiply and grow strong. And because of what they do, we'll find out in the next chapter that there is another son born, this deliverer. Now notice, in all of this, it seems as though God is absent. He is certainly silent. They do not get a word from the Lord in this time period. There are 400 years of silence. And yet, though their questions go unanswered, though it seems like they're facing adversity without purpose and hostility without protection, this is not the case. God is working his providence, working his protection, working his care all behind the scenes. Isaiah 55, 8 gives us this category in our minds. He says, from my thoughts, this is the Lord speaking, are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways, declares the Lord. See, God operates at his own pace in his own ways, and so this should help us and instruct us when we go, I can't figure out why God would do it like this. You should just go, well, yeah, his ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. Of course I wouldn't know what God is doing in this moment. The Bible does not also give us pat answers and simple calculations for why we suffer. But instead of explanations and answers, God, will give us, God does give us a framework for our suffering. So that by faith we believe that God's sovereign hand is in control. Ensuring that all things, including my suffering, are going to work together for his purposes and my good. Exodus 1 is meant to teach us of a need for us to have a mature and patient faith. We've got to go beyond Uh, just childish calculations into a maturity that says, Lord, I trust you. Even when I don't understand what's happening around me, I trust that you are good. Hebrews 6, 11 through 12. The writer says, And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So friends, may we learn from those who've gone before. May we imitate the faith of Shifra and Pua who leaned into faith instead of answers, fully assured of the hope they had in the gospel, enduring to the end so that we would inherit the promises. And as I close, I want you to remember that even here in our first chapter, we get a glimpse of Jesus. Because remember, every story whispers his name. In the same way that the serpent king Pharaoh ordered the slaughter of innocent children, hundreds of years later, there would come another serpent king, King Herod, who would do the exact same thing. In Matthew's gospel, we learn that he too has an edict of death to kill every boy under the age of two in Bethlehem. And what was at stake was nothing short of the life of the true and greater Moses, our deliverer, Jesus Christ. And under that edict of death, his life hung in the balance. But yet again, the serpent king's edict of death would be outmaneuvered as Joseph is warned in a dream to flee, although ironically, to Egypt so that Jesus would be saved. Friends, this should teach us that even in days of despair and darkness, there's always reason for hope and light.